Hello, I'm TJ and welcome to my garden. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about school gardening. I know I already said this in the last couple of days, but uh, we're, we're going to get into the big school gardening episode. I'm solo out here right now because all of the dogs are hiding in the house. I think it's starting to get a little too warm for them. It's not that hot out, but they're kind of chickens. Um, but I've got dogs in the distance barking, so hopefully too much of that doesn't end up in the recording. Um, so today we're going to talk about school gardens, why they fail, hopefully some uh, encouragement and tips on how to prevent them from failing, and long term, like I've said in the previous episodes, reach out to me if you have questions or concerns about your own school gardens, I, I would really like to hear them. Um, but let's get started with sort of what the problem is and where to go from there. So um, a lot of school gardens fail, the majority of them do. Uh, most school gardens don't fail completely. The infrastructure is still there and it does get reused again and again and again. But gardens tend to go through a cycle of somebody having an interest in it, either building or uh, sort of renovating an existing school garden. And then there's interest for a while and then there's a staff change or there's an administrative change or there's a rule change or they need to remove the garden because they have to expand the school and they need that land for that. Um, or just they ran out of funding and they don't have any money to buy supplies for the garden. Uh, and in a lot of cases, schools don't always have summer school. So after a long vacation or a summer school, the garden kind of gets wrecked. You know, the, the weather's really bad or some plants just grow out of control. The weeds overtake it all and nobody really has the energy or time to get it back up and going. And everybody says they will. And then a year passes, two years pass. Eventually somebody comes along and redoes it and the whole cycle begins again. So I actually um, did do some research. I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes, but there was a study done. And those are actually some of the big reasons were lack of ongoing supplies. But the biggest were administrative changes and staff changes. I don't think it was in that order. I think it was reverse order. I think it was staff changes and administrative changes. But uh, those are the big ones. It's personnel and stuff. So this has led to the cycle where a lot of schools have gardens, but they aren't necessarily working at any given time. Uh, they have the beds there. Um, and I think a bigger part of it that maybe wasn't picked up on the uh, study too much was that I think a lot of people when they start a school garden, it's usually like one teacher or staff member who's really interested or an administrator, or maybe they're partnering with a charitable organization like the one I work for, and they get them going on one. Uh, they bite off more than they can chew. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. I think another big part of it is there's a tendency, just because of the way schools operate normally, to try and involve a lot more bureaucracy than needs to happen. Uh, by that I mean, I actually, if you if you Google around, you can find a couple of these. Because I found more than one source telling me this. But there's a few sources on how to start a school garden online. Um, and, like, the first several steps are sort of bureaucratic nonsense it's it's uh you know create a uh like a community action group or whatever and, and you know get a, a board together of all these people who are going to be affected and get your school administrator involved and you know blah 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 basically build up a whole governance board for the guard and none of that is necessary to get started um if you try to do that first i feel like that's gonna burn a lot of the momentum uh the best way to start is small 
most school administrators probably won't have a problem with a teacher putting a couple of buckets planted with tomatoes out in front of their in front of their classroom. Uh, most school administrators probably won't have a lot of problems with a few extra house plants. So start that way, you know, start small. So first step, get some buckets, get some tomatoes. There are some great dwarf varieties that don't actually require a very large uh, planting medium to grow in. Get those, get the uh, extreme dwarfs, plant up some tomatoes. Everybody loves tomatoes. Uh, you can get some small uh, planters and plant radishes. Like I said in the last episode, radishes are great for kids because they're usually done in about five weeks. So, you know, they plant it, they see it grow, they eat it. Really quick, really easy win for them. Uh, and you can even do a few things like buckets of tomatoes. I'm sorry, tomatoes. Buckets of potatoes and other crops that can be grown in containers. Lettuce planters are awesome. Right? Get a bunch of planters going. Get things like that going. And then once you kind of have enough success with the kids and enough sort of produce coming out of that, stuff you can show off around the school to get people interested that's when you can start involving the administrator and seeing what steps you need to take to have a little bit more real estate, right? To, to get an area where you can plant, maybe build some beds up and get school gardening to be more of a curriculum item at the school. Um, now, I can't talk too much about curriculum itself. I do teach from a curriculum at the program I'm at, but I am not a teacher primarily, um, as in I don't have a teaching certificate. I'm not, I'm an educator. I'm not a teacher. So... I don't know a whole lot about developing curriculum, so I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is the gardening side of it. Uh, but once you show them that you can be successful, uh, if you're a teacher, you know how to make lesson plans, so you can build from there. The, the main thing, though, when you're building up is be realistic about the infrastructure. I have actually, at the, at the gardens we work with, I've heard people say, we don't want to put in drip irrigation, which here in, in Southern California is pretty much essential for our, our warmer seasons. Uh, they've said, I don't want to put in drip irrigations. We want to teach the children responsibility by having them hand water. Teaching them responsibility will kill your plants. <laughs> it just will. Um, we This is a hot, dry climate. It may not be the same way all over the country, but in most parts of the country, at least during the warmer months, it's going to be pretty similar. Plants need a lot of water, and they need it regularly, and they can't rely on students who may forget, but more importantly, aren't there on weekends or holidays. Uh, a drip system is going to reliably water your plants at a controlled method. If you want responsibility, have the kids manage the drip system. Have them check the programming periodically to make sure it's watering the way it should. Um, get some little you know, bits of test stuff. You can put little vials and stuff on the ground to collect a little bit of water to show how much water it's putting down so the kids can measure the water. Have them learn about evapotranspiration rates and look up projected evapotranspiration rates for their area for the next week or whatever so they know how much to water. You know, Get them involved in learning how to water well and properly rather than making the plants dependent on not having a long weekend when it's going to be hot or dry out, uh, because that's a great way to kill all the plants. So if at all possible, put in a drip irrigation system, or you can pick up some uh, ulas, those little clay pots that you can bury down into the planter. You water from above into the ula, and then they sort of soak out from the pot into the soil around the plants. You might need a few of them for a larger bed, probably will need a few of them for a larger bed, but they're a great way to provide water pretty continuously over, say, a weekend. Um, so definitely put in some kind of irrigation, if at all possible. 
even if it's not possible, figure something out because that's going to do a lot more than almost anything else to keep that garden alive and running. Then you also want to make sure somebody's there who can put in the additional work the garden's going to need. The work the kids put in is only going to count for, depending upon the size of your garden, uh, 20, maybe if you're very lucky, 30% of the amount of work the garden actually needs. Weeding with kids is like herding cats. <laughs> you, you will get, younger kids can weed for a good solid, you know, five, 10 minutes. That's it. Uh, then they're going to get bored and come up with other activities. Older kids could weed longer, but it's hard enough getting them to do it in the first place. They aren't necessarily going to sit there and do that long term. So you're going to end up having to weed <laughs> or whoever's involved. So you need to make sure there are staff members, ideally more than one, who have some time in their schedule where they, or in their day where they can just, you know, sit down and weed a bed. Um, it's a good leisure activity. I enjoy it. But if you want a school garden, you're going to have to find people who can make those additional commitments that cover all the additional work the garden's going to need that the kids can't do. Um, so that's, that's really important. Another thing, too, is school gardens often don't have staff who are gardeners. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, the, whoever usually starts a school garden pro project has some experience or interest in gardening, but maybe isn't an expert. In fact, often they're not. And so a big problem school gardens run into is they just don't have the depth of gardening knowledge available to keep them running. And that is a responsibility of whoever's really pushing this program. If you want there to be a school garden at your school, you're going to have to take initiative and learn to garden. You're going to have to learn about the rhythm of, of the year. Um, in some climates like mine, I, I often forget to do this. I really should. But you can plant a second succession of tomatoes. I usually just hope my tomatoes make it through the summer relatively unscathed and deal with the diminished returns in the fall. But a smart person plants additional tomatoes in uh, June or July. And then around, you know, this time of year, they're pulling out the old tomato plants that have pretty much, you know, gotten fairly weak over the hottest part of our summer. And they're putting in new tomato plants that will keep them in tomatoes through the rest of the fall. Rhythms like that are very important to develop, especially in school gardens. Um, another part of being realistic and also to rhythms is you also have to remember what your school year is. I mean, unless you do summer school, your school year is fall, winter, spring. This means you're going to be growing a lot of greens. This means you're going to be growing a lot of cold crops, you know, cabbage, lettuce, or not lettuce, I'm sorry, cabbage, uh, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, uh, cauliflower, those sorts of things, mustard greens. Things that will survive a light frost. Uh, if you live in a cold climate where you get snow, you're going to need to worry about some season extension. Maybe some, uh, you know, basically uh, plastic tunnels, uh, greenhouses, cold frames. You can find instructions for how to build these in most gardening books. You're going to have to do some season extension to make sure you can garden through the winter because that is going to be some of your prime school year time. And you're going to lose all that if you're only gardening in the fall and spring. Okay. Um, you're also not going to be able to grow a lot of the classic crops. You can probably squeeze in some tomatoes if you sort of cheat a little. If you, if you grow them in a greenhouse or something during the later part of winter. And then you plant them out as soon as it's warm enough in spring. And let them start fruiting. You can get some fruit before summer. But by and large, uh, a lot of plants like okra, um, a lot of summer favorites... A lot of corn that you're not going to get as much of 
during the school year, just because unless you're doing summer, you don't have that long season to give them. So you have to be realistic uh, and you have to learn the rhythms of the year and what you can plant when. And you can break those rhythms, but you're going to have to invest. You're going to have to get greenhouses or uh, polytunnels or other structures that you can use to garden through winter. You're going to have to get shade cloth and other things so you can garden through exceptionally hot summers if you're doing summer school only. Um, so these are things to think about. You also, and this is the most important thing, because I've noticed this even in the curriculum we deal with, uh, there really isn't a lot of gardening in our gardening curriculum. It's mostly a nutrition curriculum, and the gardening parts don't really sync up to the gardening year. It's just plant some bean seeds and have them watch them grow, and yet it doesn't say what time of year. And that, as an instruct, as an educator, you're going to have to flex whatever curriculum you're using for this around your gardening year, not the other way around. Your garden will not bend to a curriculum which means you need to plant the plants when they need to be planted for the time of year. You can't plant them when the curriculum says to plant them or when you get to that lesson. You have to plant them when they need to be planted. Um, and you have to adjust. If you live in a climate where you can't grow a certain plant and your curriculum says, hey, plant this plant, you need to plant something else. If it's trying to get you to plant summer crops, and you don't do summer school, you're going to have to adjust that. You're going to have to be creative. If you try to just take a curriculum and follow that for your gardening year, you're going to fail. And if you fail to make the curriculum work, that's what, you know, schools operate on is curriculum. Without curriculum, it's, ra it's you know, rapidly going to deteriorate the amount of time you're allowed by your administrators to put into this. Um, and I know it sounds like I'm speaking to, say, a teacher who's trying to get a school garden started. That's because that's usually how it starts. Uh, but a lot of this is equally applicable if you happen to be that administrator or anybody else involved in the sort of educational food chain. Uh, you have to make it practical to a school environment. It has to hit all the right high notes. You know, I mean, it has to hit the curriculum or whatever to basically keep afloat. I mean, to, to be something useful to the school. Um, and then I think that's about all I have to say on that. I'm going to definitely come back to school gardening quite a bit because it's something I do for a living. Um, but I'm coming to the end of the episode, so I did want to talk a little bit about some resources. Uh, seed donations. Most seed companies have them, and they freely donate to school gardens. Your local green waste facility, uh, those green trash bins we all put out in front of our houses, most of those go to a facility where it's composted in most jurisdictions. You'll have to check in your area to see what they do. But here in uh, Bakersfield, California, our Bakersfield Green Waste Facility gives free compost to any school or nonprofit organization. We get it for our site. We get it for all of our school sites. It is made from primarily lawn clippings and uh, tree leaves, so it is... Fairly high nitrogen because people over fertilize their lawns. And it's got pretty much all the stuff you need to help uh, improve soil structure and everything. So it's really good stuff. It's a bit dusty and in our case a bit hydrophobic because it does sit out in the sun for quite a while. But both those can be managed. Um, so it's a definitely a really good resource. Um, I'm also going to post a link in the show notes. But the uh, University of California in Davis is sort of the center of integrated pest management research and development, uh, at least in California. And it's also the college through which all of our extension services are operated. So I'm going to post some links to their resources as well. It's a great place to go to find out what, you know, pests are bugging your plants, how to deal with them, that sort of thing. Also dealing with different weeds and some instructions and help for how to actually cultivate different crops. 
Uh, and a big resource to reach out for, and it's going to vary a lot. In some areas, it won't be very useful. In other areas, they provide all kinds of services. But those uh, university extensions. Here in California, Davis itself provides a lot of resources. The extensions can be hit or miss depending upon which county you live in. Uh, in some counties, they provide a lot of services to the general public. In some counties, they pretty much just work with farmers. Uh, like the one here, we don't have a lot of uh, services outside of the college or farmers for general people provided by the, the extension. The extension mostly focuses on farmers and, and uh, local community college here because due to weird circumstances, our local college college isn't allowed to provide ag. Uh, go figure. But yeah, so that's a really great resource you should definitely look up. Even if you're just thinking about doing a school garden, they, they're going to have some useful information for you. Uh, so that about wraps it up. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be reviewing the square foot gardening book. And on the following Friday, I'm going to be reviewing uh, the lasagna gardening book. And I'll talk about also how those can be used to start, say, a school or community garden and sort of some specifics there as well. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for those. You can reach out to me at the contact me page over at tjsgarden.com. You can also uh, go to podcast.tjsgarden.com if you're not already subscribed and subscribe. Uh, so thank you for listening. Go out and enjoy your garden.